This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. <clears throat> the bud stands for all things even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops, to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering, from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Well, good morning and welcome to Fire Lotus Temple, especially to those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, it, is, it is good to be here. I don't come often. It is always good uh, to come. And um, uh, right now at the monastery, they're doing the Ango opening ceremony for uh, entering into our 90-day training intensive. You'll do the Ango opening here next weekend with Hojin Sensei and Hogan Sensei. And it's really entering into peaceful dwelling. So I would, I would suggest, you know, those of you who are uh, filling out your, your commitment sheets, so just as you're thinking of, of Ango, instead of thinking, you know, how much am I going to sit? What am I going to do for our practice? Uh, which, although it's important, uh, think of it really, how do I enter and cultivate practice for these three months, peaceful dwelling? What is that even? Now, this poem that I just read is by Galway Kinnell, an American poet. He died in 2014. And... um, a student brought it to our LGBTQ T groups some time ago, I think last year or the year before. And I was thinking about it recently, and um, so I decided to to use it for this talk. I was thinking that I I myself, you know, have started to use the word lovely, uh, something I wouldn't have done, I don't know, ten years ago, five years ago, even. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it's beca- uh, perhaps because I'm um, officially middle aged. <laughs> and, and it reminded me of the stand-up comedian I saw, um, Mexican comedian. She was saying, you know, how long do I have until middle age? You know, how long do I have to I start teasing my hair and dancing everything like the cha-cha? Uh, rave, pop, country, doesn't matter. Middle-aged women dance it like the cha-cha. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Certainly not the hair, so maybe there's still hope for me. <laughs> Um, but I was thinking of this word, uh, lovely, and, and in fact, I, I used it recently in a talk, and I surprised myself. And, um, 
And it also made me think of a concern a couple of people have brought up recently about um, Zen in, in our order, specifically, becoming feminized. Um, and it was two gentlemen who were, <laughs> who were bringing up this, this concern, at least the ones that I, that I heard. Maybe there's others. Um, and I wasn't completely clear, I have to admit, what, what the concern was, but it definitely had a, a, a negative connotation. Uh, one of them did say to me that it felt we were kind of getting kind of woo-woo, um, maybe too soft, you know, too much emphasis on the heart and love and kindness. And, you know, I wonder, is the, is the concern then that we would lose our rigor, you know, our seriousness, that, that we would somehow lose the, the, um, the pith of, of our tradition, of our practice? And, of course, you know, the question can arise, perhaps should arise, you know, why is that a bad thing to, to soften, to speak about loving kindness, to allow our practice to be warmer? And Zen does have a reputation, you know, for being um, rigorous, uh, disciplined, strict, you know, in some ways. In less favorable terms, it can be seen as macho. And, you know, at the monastery we, we have, um, especially lately, we've had a, a spate of, of young men who have been listening to Alan Watts. Apparently there's been a, a resurgence <laughs> of Alan Watts recently. And they've been listening to him and they're... they're Determine, you know, they're coming to a Zen monastery, some of them um, ready to cut off their arm like Wicca and stand in the snow, you know, to prove the, the seriousness of their practice. And I think, well, you know, that's nice, <laughs> but completely unnecessary. It's like, keep your arm and open your heart, your mind. That's how you will actually help others. And... Um, you know, one of the most helpful pieces of advice, uh, I was going to say practice advice, but really life advice, was from uh, Hogan Sensei. And years ago, he was living at the monastery, as was I, and uh, he was running Dharma Communications, our outreach arm. And I was working there. And he was talking to someone, I don't remember about what, and it seemed to me he was just repeating himself. He was just saying the same thing, you know, that he had been saying for years. And I said to him afterwards, I said, aren't you tired of repeating yourself? Uh, not knowing that very soon I would be repeating myself constantly. <laughs> and he just looked at me, and he said, Suisse, you just have to love them. And at the time, every bit of me bristled uh, at that piece of advice, and I resisted it for a long time. And I thought, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And then I practiced a little more and hopefully matured a little bit uh, more. And I started to see, oh, he's right. He's right. I just have to love them. Not like them. He didn't say, you don't have to, you, you have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. Just love them. I mean, I, I think of it as regard them, respect them for who they are, because there's a human being in front of you. And so the only reason we have to reteach a thing, its loveliness, is because we forget, is because we stop seeing, 
and we stop regarding ourselves and regarding one another is not because we stop being lovely in our self-blessing, in our perfection. We, we call it in Buddhism, right, our inherent perfection. Is because that loveliness gets covered up you know, with a lot of words, a lot of thoughts, a lot of meaning that we ascribe to those thoughts. And slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, but over time, lose touch with ourselves, lose touch with our true nature. And you know, just so it's clear, I'm not saying that all actions are lovely. You know, we just have to look at the world, read the news to see that there's, there's a lot of that is not lovely. There's a lot that is, that is harmful, that is difficult, that is challenging. But I am saying that um, we, we create that harm, that hatred, and we were talking about this a little bit yesterday at the um, patients' retreat with a group, you know. And I and I asked the question. We were using a text by Shantideva, eighth-century Indian master, who um, is talking about. We think because I don't I don't know I can't read Sanskrit I can't read the the original and the terms are uh, translated as good and bad or good and evil, and. At a certain point, I asked the group, do you believe that beings are inherently good or inherently evil or inherently bad, and why? And then we, we discussed it. And I have always believed you know, that, that beings, that we um, do tend towards goodness. And I, and I said to them that Pema Chodron talks about a, a, a time where she witnessed a man who was uh, irate. He was enraged with Trungpa Rinpoche, who was her teacher. And the man said, how can you possibly say that beings tend towards goodness? We're inherently flawed human beings. And Trungpa Rinpoche very calmly just said, all beings tend towards goodness. And whether you believe it, it, in it or not doesn't actually matter. It doesn't change that truth. One of the participants said, I would rather believe that because the alternative is too depressing. And, and, that, and that is not insignificant because what we believe is how we will see the world and is how we will act. Right? And so if we, do, if we believe that human beings are inherently flawed, that is how we will navigate our world. And so, you know, I was saying, you know, Buddhism, we, some people could, could say, well, Buddhism is just naive, you know, it's optimistic. Naive, let's say. But really, the most important thing is we need to test these teachings for ourselves. You know, every bit of of teaching that we hear really needs to be uh, tested. It needs to be tried out in our lives. You know, we need to be able to, to discern. And the more I practice, the more we practice, the more that is true. Is this actually, uh, does this align with my experience? And if it doesn't, then what does that mean? What do we do about it? You know, how do we decide what is um, true and what isn't. 
and Robert Thurman called Buddhism engaged realism. And I've always liked that because it really means, I mean, it's exactly what it says, we have to be engaged with reality. We have to be in relationship with it. We have to be looking and questioning and testing. Does this work as I'm being told that it does? Is this teaching true? We were speaking a bit about selflessness yesterday, which of course is the really the underpinning. It is, it is um, the basis on which all the teachings of Buddhism rest. That there is no uh, solid, independent, fixed self. That this sense of me is a construct that I maintain. And in a moment of being, um, let's, not, let's not say just slighted, in a moment of being hurt by someone, what does that teaching uh, offer? That, let's say that someone hurts you and you're, and you're angry, and you have reason to be angry. You have been hurt. It's not, this isn't, it's not make-believe. Turning towards that teaching that this self is empty this person who just hurt me is empty of self-nature. What does that mean? And how can that help you? Can it help you? Does it help you when you hear that? Or do you think, wait a second, no. Somebody just hurt me. We can't just uh, wish that away. And so I feel it's really important to, to really investigate. You know, Master Dogen used to say, you know, you, you study and you study and then you study some more so that we're not taking any of this at, um, you know, at face value or on, on some kind of um, untested, untried, untried belief. Now, the Buddha said that there are eight conditions for the arising of wisdom. And wisdom really is seeing things as they are, is seeing the true nature of things, how things work, including this. And wisdom does not belong to Buddhism. It is simply the way things work. And Buddhism has a a particular framework for it and has teachings that describe it. And there's a practice, how to cultivate it, how to realize it. But if Buddhism disappeared from the earth tomorrow, an hour from now, if no one practiced anymore, the way things work, the way things are, would still be true. And the first of these conditions is to study with a teacher and and also to have a sense of respect, of affection, and trust toward that teacher. And so this is so because without those elements, a teacher can't teach you, right? You need to give permission to be taught. You have to ask for the teachings. And you have to have a certain amount of faith that this person can, in fact, guide you. Not infallibly, but on a human path of practice and realization. Because, you know, the Buddha did not have a teacher. He, he did. He had a number of teachers, which, as the story goes, he surpassed. And at a certain point, he really had to go on his own with his deep sense that the way through the conflict that he saw, the problem of, of being a human being that the way through that was within himself, right? And so as the the story of the Buddha says, he sat down, he vowed to not get up from his seat 
until he realized himself. So he didn't have a teacher. But most of us, most of us, without a teacher, you know, we'll get arrogant, think we've arrived. We'll get discouraged, think we'll never get there. Think of the early years in, in my practice. You know, Daito Roshi was my first teacher. And, um, you know, his, I think his, his biggest gift to me, if you will, is that he really saw me, I felt, he really saw me as a Buddha. You know, he, and we speak of this all the time, you know, these talks, they're from a Buddha to a Buddha, you know, we use that term a lot. But I, when I was in his presence, I really felt he saw me as a Buddha, which meant he knew I could see what I was not seeing yet, and that I could act out of a goodness that I did not feel a lot of the time. I felt that he trusted me to that extent. And because he did, I thought, I must be able to do this. He must know. He seems to know something that I don't. So I'm not so sure. There were many times when I definitely was not sure. And I thought, but I trust him. Okay, so I will stay with this. The second is to ask. You know, having a teacher or teachers, you have to, the willingness to, to ask about what you don't yet understand, which can be challenging. You know, for a long time, I went to face-to-face teaching, and I didn't... It's not that I didn't have questions. I didn't want to ask because I didn't want to s- seem stupid. I didn't want him to think that I didn't know what the hell was going on. I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> That's why I was there. But I didn't want him to, to, to know that. I mean, of course, he knew that. Uh, <laughs> and at a certain point, he said to me, Vanessa, I was not yet Suisse, he said to me, Vanessa, this is like a tennis game, applying to my, uh, appealing to my jock nature. He says, this is like a tennis game. You have to throw the ball my way. Otherwise, I have nothing to work with. I have nothing to hit. And I remember at one point thinking to myself, well, and I was living at the monastery, so I was seeing him regularly. I thought I could continue. You know, I could just try to get my act together until I feel uh, ready, you know, to, to ask. Or I can just ask. I can, I can um, assume that I have this Buddha in front of me who is sitting in this room to help me and who wants to help me. It looks like, it feels like he really wants to help me. So what if I just start someplace. You know, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of teachings and commentaries on those commentaries. There's the hours and hours that we sit on the cushion. And what comes up there, what comes up for, you know, during liturgy, during work, during your life, right? Relationships. I mean, there's so much that we don't understand. So why not ask? I mean, just just human consciousness, I mean, what is that? What is that? Because without asking, how will we know? How will we understand? And really, the most important thing is asking ourselves. I mean, the teacher is there to, you know, to bounce something off of and, and, you know, and, and to guide and to direct to some extent. But really, it is more and more to learn, as I was, I was saying to the group yesterday, is to be self-directed, is to more and more understand what it is that I need and to, and to move towards that and to be deeply, deeply interested in all aspects 
of myself, my mind, my body, my experience, what we call this human life. I was reading recently a book about, it's somewhat about consciousness, but it's a, 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 natural, a naturalist, biologist, who's, uh, she's in love with octopuses. And so she wrote this book about octopuses. And she talks about, they're, they're apparently um, one of the, or perhaps the um, most intelligent invertebrate. And people are constantly surprised about how intelligent they are. And she was saying there was, there was one giant Pacific octopus in Seattle, I believe, Sammy, who uh, they get bored in, in their tanks and so, they, so that they don't start causing trouble. They give them things to do. And so they gave Sammy these uh, just pieces of kind of uh, plastic piping that were connected. And in one of them, they put food. And what quickly they saw Sammy do is... He, he would unscrew it, take the food out, and screw it back on. And so they started giving him uh, more and more complicated pieces. And so he would have a great time just unscrewing all the pieces, and then he would pass them over to his uh, tank mate, an anemone. And the anemone would take them and just hold them for a while, try to put them in his mouth, and then throw them away. Now, the anemones are brainless, so they have an excuse. (laughs) They, they couldn't interact much more with the, <laughs> with the plastic, but Sammy could. And they're constantly having to devise these different kinds of tanks because they will escape. Given it, I mean, you know, can you blame them? I mean, you're in a tank when you came from the ocean. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't blame them. And so they, they, can, they can go through a, the thinnest crack, and they'll find a, there was one that escaped a few years ago. I, remember, I forget where it was. And they just saw the trail, the water trail, <laughs> found a drain, and hopefully made its way <laughs> to the ocean. Anyway, I don't know how I got on that. but <laughs> <laughs> The third condition for wisdom is withdrawal <laughs> or seclusion. Um, and in the sutras, you know, the Buddha describes... Uh, the, the deep states of concentration that uh, he attained before he, before he moved into wisdom, before he realized himself. They're called the jhanas. And in the sutras it says, quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, a practitioner enters and dwells in the first jhana, the first of these uh, meditative states, which is accompanied by applied thought and sustained thought with rapture and happiness, born of seclusion. And, you know, the reason we do retreats is because it's necessary in order to see more clearly to, um, we have to minimize distractions. We have to turn inward. We call zazen the backward step or, or turning the light around. We have to do that deliberately. Not as a way to avoid our lives, because, but because it is very difficult to see when, we, um, when we're pulled in all these different directions, right? And so we need to see clearly so that when we do get off the cushion, we can meet our lives clearly and wholeheartedly. I was saying yesterday, you know, the Dharma doesn't need protection, but we do. Our mind does. We need to protect it you know, from our own confusion and our reactive and often very ineffectual habits. 
You know, if you think of a moment when you felt uh, threatened in some way and you reactively turned and criticized someone else. Sometimes it happens so fast we don't even know that's what we're doing, right? And so you put somebody down and in that moment you bolster yourself up a little bit. You feel a little bit better about yourself. And it kind of works. Unless you're really paying attention to the whole experience and then you detect that feeling of, ugh, when you do something like that. You know, it's, it's, all of a sudden it's as if you, you, know, you look down and you realize there's a trail of toilet paper hanging from your, your pants and you've been walking through the hallways with it thinking that you fooled everyone. <laughs> and um, uh, Buddha Gosa spoke of that, that instant, that moment of losing self-respect is, is shame, is what we call shame. But in, in, I feel like in Western thought, shame has a very bad rep because it, it, it gets equated with humiliation. And the Buddha actually saw it as a, one of the protectors of the world, because it's really just letting you know in that moment you've done something that was not in harmony, really, with the way things are. It usually has to do with, with the self, letting the self arise, right? Or that fear of the self has been in some way minimized. And so it just lets you know that feeling of, ugh, just lets you know there's something not quite in line. The fourth condition is a virtue or ethical conduct. And so, you know, we practice what is wholesome and avoid what is unwholesome. We practice the precepts in our tradition. We practice the paramitas, the perfections, in order to live, you know, a wholesome life, but also because it helps to then lead to concentration, right? If we're sitting in our cushion struggling with our, with our actions... It, it's very difficult to see what's happening to settle, let alone even concentrate. And so, you know, the three, um, I think it's the three seals, because the three marks are, are impermanence, um, unsatisfactoriness, and, and um, selflessness. But I think it's the three seals of practice, or the three components that are often described in Buddhism is the ethical conduct, the, the precepts, really, the sila, uh, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom, prajna. And so in order to have a mind that is concentrated first, you have to live, you could say, a virtuous life, an ethical life. Then you can move into wisdom. And, you know, when we do act contrary to that and we hurt others, we hurt ourselves, and our minds do become agitated. You know, sometimes what we do instead is to compartmentalize, right, or repress, or we were talking yesterday about leapfrogging or uh, your own feelings, your own thoughts, bypassing, right, it's a, it's a common psychological term. We can certainly do that, but that takes energy, that doesn't happen automatically. We have to choose to do that, even when we don't think we're choosing it. And so that is energy that is now not available to stabilize my mind and to see more clearly. And so in the beginning, although zazen is effortful and it can be tiring, with time, it becomes more natural. Right? It becomes the way our mind is. The, the Vajrayana teachings say this all the time, just rest in the natural, open, luminous state of mind. 
And they insist, they're constantly pointing uh, to the fact that that is our true state of being. That all this noise and confusion and cloudiness is created. Which is kind of staggering if you think about it. Because we spend so much energy, so much effort quieting the mind, right? So they're saying, actually, the effort is going into all that thinking, all that creating that you're doing. Just stop creating. In moments where if you feel discouraged, or, or sometimes, you know, when I feel like my mind is very active, I just say to myself, rest your mind. That's it. Just rest your mind. The fifth condition is learning, remembering, and reflecting on the teachings. Right? So it's not enough just to listen to a talk, to go to a retreat. We naturally need to reflect, to really take in what we've heard, grapple with it. Grapple with it, because that's how it will help you. That's how it will transform your life. You know, so that more and more what is true is permeating our lives. So that when things get difficult... We, we can have these teachings at our fingertips, right? What's the point of learning something we quite, if we can't use it? So it, it? so that it doesn't stay as an exercise. Shugen Roshi will often ask us during the study sessions, well, how would you say that, that particular teaching? How would you say it in your own words? Right? So for the longest time, these are words that you're reading, the sutras, the Buddha's words, the Dogen's words, at a certain point, they need to become your words. You might say it differently. Most likely you would. But how would you say it from your understanding? And there was uh, a couple of years ago, I did Doksan with Chosen Roshi, who's, um, I guess she's our Dharma, um, I guess she's my Dharma aunt. She was Daido Roshi's um, sister in the Dharma. She trained with him at Sun Center of Los Angeles. And um, I presented a koan, and I, and I did it with her. And then she asked me to do the same koan, but with a life situation. And I've never forgotten that, because we, we should be making that translation. But she specifically asked me to do it. She, she didn't assume that I was going to do that. She's like, okay, there's this classical teaching. Now, how do you take it into your life so that it actually works for you? The sixth condition is energy, effort, we call it, zeal. We need to absolutely be energetic and determined in our effort to free ourselves. You know, because we're dealing with delusion. We're dealing with delusion. We're dealing with the strongest uh, belief that there is of this, of this fixed independent self. And somebody was saying yesterday, well, what's wrong with the self? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with the self. It is what we do around that belief, around that thought, that creates just so much hurt. We don't have to look far to see that that is true. And so, you know, sometimes I remind myself of this, you know, when I'm, when I'm feeling tired, you know, when I'm, when I'm complaining about the rigor, the long hours. I say to myself, yeah, but you're dealing with delusion. This is going to take a bit of work, and that's okay. We also need to be gentle, and we need to take care of ourselves, <clears throat> and we need to know which is which. 
we spoke about this yesterday, you know, when do you really challenge yourself? When do you stretch? When do you aspire to, for something that you can't yet even see, but you know it's there, you know, and it requires something um, great of you. And when do you actually need, really do need to relax, in a sense, rest in where you are right now? Accept. And no one can, can say that, can, can tell you which one it is. We're the only ones who know our bodies, our minds. And so, you know, being mindful is not just paying attention your, your mind does need to be stable and your, and your body needs to be relaxed enough so that you can discern. And it's, you know, this way, zazen is not the only way to work with your body and mind by any means, but it can be a very powerful way. And so, as I said, you know, ultimately each one of us have to be our own guide. The seventh condition is practicing right speech not engaging in what the Buddha called idle talk, and not shunning noble silence. You know, at a time when we as a culture are talking so much and saying so little, what is right speech? What is, when is silence noble? When is it dangerous? When is it avoidant? And for some time now, I've been a student of silence of stillness. I, I, I very much feel its power and I crave it more and more. <clears throat> and I've told this story before. Of I was here, in fact, some years ago and I was uh, taking the, the subway here. I, I was beginning the week of training and I was taking the subway to come over here. And there was a young man directly across from me, very kind of regular looking young man. He looked like a football player. And uh, he was reading a book, Clockwork Orange, and uh, I have never, outside of the Zendo, seen someone so still, ever. Perhaps even including the Zendo, I'm not sure. <laughs> because it was so unexpected, right? I mean, is this subway? And it wasn't a very busy subway. And he, I, I wasn't even sure if he was reading, because he was completely unmoving, and then eventually I said, well, he just moved just, uh, just enough to, the, the book was in his lap, and he just turned the page, moved it over, and returned you know, to holding the book, and it was like he hadn't moved at all. And I felt for a moment as if the whole, you know, the subway car and the, the line that we were on, the tracks and the, the buildings, you know, the whole neighborhood had been just like, like sucked into his being. It was that powerful. And I really, really wanted to see him move. Because I thought there's going to be something so graceful, you know, so powerful about his movement. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't. And my stop is getting, you know, is coming. I'm like, well, maybe I'll go to the next one. So I stayed one more stop. And then I thought, you know, what am I going to tell Shugan when I get to the temple if I'm late? I was stalking, you know, a young man. <laughs> so I had to get off of the train at the, the next stop. And I was still, you know, watching through the window to see if he would move. He didn't. And I actually felt as I was walking away, I felt sad. I actually felt as if I had missed something really important by not watching him, not seeing him move. And, you know, and without that deep, sometimes people complain of, of our stillness. Why do we have to be still? Why do we have to be so uptight? 
is not uptightness, without a deep, abiding stillness, we'll, we do get thrown about by every passing cloud. And so you're training, you're practicing. In a degree of stillness, I often say, that most of us have never experienced. And the reason is because if you can do that, you can harness a power that is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. And the eighth condition is contemplating the rise and fall of the five aggregates, the five skandhas. So we chanted them this morning. Form, sensation, conception, discrimination, and awareness. Really how the self is put together, according to Buddhism. And so this is saying we watch them arise, we watch them pass. They don't stay. There's nothing where I can you know, point to and grab and say, that's suise. It is just these skandhas, these aggregates coming together and coming apart. You know, so at the moment of my death, they will come apart. The conditions will be such that they will separate. And, and they are, these skandhas are how we perceive, how we perceive everything. And it's, it's lightning fast. And so this is saying, well, if you're able to slow down enough, you can see that there's nothing behind these. As I said before, nothing solid. And, you know, and this may, this may feel a little technical, these, this, this list of conditions for wisdom, but it really is, is describing what needs to be in place in order for us to see. And I like to call zazen the practice of seeing reality. So we're seeing things not as we would like them to be, not as we think they should be, but how they actually are. And that is why it's such a powerful practice. That is why it's a challenging practice. But most importantly, it's a practice of liberation. So it's seeing so that we can, in fact, be free. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. There was a woman who um, had to have some, some kind of operation. I think she had a stroke. And uh, when she was, the doctors had warned her that they had to do some reconstruction in her face. And the doctors had warned her that um, they could do quite a bit, but they, her, that her lip, she would end up with a wry lip, that it would, it would kind of droop a little bit on one side. And they said, we'll, we'll do the best we can, but it's too close to a nerve that if we cut it, then you wouldn't, you would lose um, mobility and sense on that side of your face, and it would be worse. And so she went through the operation, and she uh, came out, and the doctor is in the room when her partner, her wife, comes to greet her, and, you know, and so definitely you can see, you know, half of it is, is, is really drooping. And the doctor gives her um, a mirror and she sees herself. And, you know, of course, immediately there's that self-consciousness and the sadness. You can see it in her face. And her, her wife comes forward, gets close, and she looks at it and she says, I like it. I think it's very cute. <laughs> and she uh, comes close and she arranges her lips so that they fit her wife's lips exactly, her wry lips, and kisses her. 
to show her that their kiss still works. And the doctor who's standing in the corner says he just kind of uh, step back and look down. He says, because one is not bold in the presence of greatness. Galway Kinnell also said, never mind, the self is the least of it. Let our scars fall in love. And I think ultimately this is what be, what's being asked of us, that our scars fall in love with one another. Not our ideal selves. Not the selves we will become, you know, when we get our act together, when we practice really hard and we see and we attain that ideal version of ourselves. But now, right now, with our scars and our shadows, our demons, our fears, hidden or not so hidden, first, we have to fall in love with them completely, which again doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean you resign yourself. It means you accept them, respect them. And then we have to have the courage to let others fall in love with them too. We have to allow them to fall in love with them too. Because is the only thing, I think, it's only through doing this that we will reteach ourselves our loveliness. Is by making our way through the fodder and the slops and, and uh, accepting, embracing, embracing even the spininess and the right curliness of our self-doubt, our shame, our self-consciousness, those sharp shards of our broken heart. It's only there that we will reclaim our loveliness. So don't wait for another time, you know, another place. There, there is no such thing. This is it. You know, this is all we have. And it is enough. It is more than enough, actually. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.